Welcome to the Good You Can Do podcast, where we share tips and strategies to help you reduce waste, live a healthier life, and protect the planet for future generations. My name is Andrew Duncan, and you can find out more about this project at our website, goodyoucando.com. Just a little note before we jump in, the audio for this uh, episode was recorded at my favorite Wellington Cafe, Sweet Release on Manor Street. Shout out to them. Uh, but I just wanted to uh, give you a heads up because you can hear a bit of music, a bit of shuffling in the background. Uh, so I apologize in advance, but there's still you can still hear everything Leo says and he's got so much knowledge to share. Uh, and also... It is a wide-ranging, uh, deep, insightful conversation. So it's kind of one where you just want to sit back, relax, go for a walk, and take it all in. For more info on Leo's business, go and check out their website, whywaste.co.nz. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by Leo Murray from Why Waste. Kilda. Leo, thank you so much for taking the time out, man. Right on, from doing this. Mm. So, Leo is uh, is from a socio-ecological enterprise called Why Waste. He is the founder of that incredible uh, enterprise, and we're going to get into what Why Waste is and, and, and what you guys do. Leo is a real, um, in my mind, an environmental champion, a climate champion, and someone whose work uh, I admire so much. I encourage everybody listening in, if you do one thing today, please take... 18 minutes and invest it by watching Leo's TED talk. That just gives you a real understanding of what drives him. Um, and, and, uh, it's an inspiring story, uh, that I, I believe everybody should take the time to, to hear. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes and on the, on my website too. Uh, but it's titled Living with Less is Living with More. Uh, we might talk a little bit about that idea today as, today as well. Leo, I thought a, a nice place to start though might be, uh, for, to ask you to tell us about a typical day in your life. What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I'm sure you get some good answers, but I think mine is going to be like potentially a dodge, but not because I, I'm actually, I seem to be allergic to routine. And, um, the last time I really ever lived like a, a day, like a week the same was maybe when I, when I last, when I was in school. <laughs> so yeah, everything is, I mean, I suppose, you know, that's kind of like a, a very privileged statement. Um, but it's also led to me, um, you know, creating a new project and, and developing a, a regenerative income so that I can sort of, yeah, live differently. Um, I, well, I Spent, spent most of my twenties working as a DJ, and then I, that kind of needed a bit of meaning and a bit of purpose to it. So I moved into this sort of sustainability space. And so, now, what? Yeah, yeah, what do you think was the catalyst for moving into moving from being a DJ and and, and you mentioned traveling around the world in your TED talk to, to moving into this sort of sustainability space? Was there a particular catalyst, or a, you know, a, a conversation with someone, or a, an experience that you had that? Yeah. Yeah. I. I graduated from university in the middle of the global financial crisis <laughs> and so I became a DJ naturally. Um, but I, I sort of had this degree in this student loan that had taught me all about the world's problems and none of the world's solutions. Like it just was a funny thing about 
about formal education. It just didn't seem to really, it was more symptomatic. And, and your degree was on uh, international politics? Yeah, and, and media studies and New Zealand politics as well. And so had a fairly big picture awareness about what was going on, but nothing really empowering. No, no way for us to do more good. Yeah. And so I, yeah, thankfully I had sort of had, had my work in the evenings partying and then I had the days free to to sort of journey school and, and teach myself and I had some great mentors. But permaculture seemed to be the 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 pathway to arrive at, at a whole bunch of solutions and a, and, a, and a more of a systems level understanding about how we can have a more harmonious relationship with the planet. Do you remember where you first got exposed to permaculture as, a, as an idea? Um, yeah, I was living in Wellington and I'd just... Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd, this guy had asked me to help him build a bar and it was below Chow and it was in this like little room and it was this tiny, tiny bar. It was very small and we didn't... We didn't I, I, I was calling it the ghetto box, but... <laughs> He, we finished, we poured the first beer out of the tap together and it was a very satisfying moment because we built this bar. And then he said, when do you start work? And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I'm a DJ, I'm not a bartender, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And he's like, no, 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 this is definitely your bar. And I'm like, no way. And turned out it was my bar. So I, I, you know, I hosted people in this bar and whenever I'd have a gig, I'd just close the bar and just go to the gig and come back. Anyway, the bouncer that was hired to stand at the, at the entrance to this bar, he was really, really big. Well, you know, he was in a bit of a fair place, but he'd done a lot of research into peak oil. And around that time, um, well, you know, he kept like nattering to me about peak oil, and I was like, this is quite scary, and I started to research peak oil, and permaculture seemed to be the most, like, least, least sort of conspiracy, paranoia... Um, community looking at this issue mm-hmm. um, mainstream science wasn't fully there yet um, a lot of the people talking about it were, were, were like this bouncer who kind of just had a bit too much time in their hands a bit too much fear and so they were like ah, but the permaculture community were like well this is a thing it's actually potentially a positive thing and here's our response to it which is of course earth care people care fair share and so I was really stoked on on um yeah, a way to respond that wasn't victimhood. Um, and living in that place of fear, mm. uh, trying to find a place more based on positivity That's right. and caring. Um, for anyone listening, could you maybe describe peak oil or, or what that what that meant to you and meant to this to mm. this to this guy? Um, so yeah. that in case people haven't heard that term before. Yep. So um, uh, a peak, like, you know, a, a rising up of, of consumption of oil and then a, a peak point up and then a plateau and then a drop off the other side as oil reserves, um, are, you know, running out. And there's, you know, evidence to suggest that we've already peaked and now we're running on kind of like the backlog and the oil industry is also getting sort of more and more desperate and turning to like far more destructive means to extract this oil which are more energy intensive that's right uh, i i uh, recently recorded an interview with mike joy right. um which was incredible we spent the, the the conversation talking about this idea that we've been living this um crazy fossil fuel mm. fueled party um you know gorging on this 
uh, cheap energy um, mm. for a long time now, but the party's about to stop. And, you know, what are we going to do? What's our plan? What are we, what's our way through it? You know, and right. he, another analogy he uses that we're, we're living on a life raft, but we're acting like we're still living on the cruise ship, you know, mm. consuming energy at, at such a high rate. Yeah. Um, tell us about permaculture, because a lot of people might have heard that word, but don't actually know mm. what that yeah. Um, what that looks like or what that is or what that means. Um, what's What comes under that banner of, of permaculture? Mm. It, it certainly is a banner or like, you know, an umbrella. And no, okay, permaculture is, is a toolbox. And within that toolbox, toolbox are, are, uh, you know, there, there are ethics and principles that guide the use of techniques and processes that we can um, adopt in order to uh, yeah, improve our um, relationship with nature or make our culture more permanent. And yeah, I suppose I'd stress on the ethics and principles part. Because um, that's what guides yeah. you to know whether a, te- a technique should or, or, a, or a choice or a, mm. a decision can, can fit within that framework. That's and that's right. where the, the principles are so much more valuable sometimes than the actual mm. specifics. That's right. And so it kind of... One of the principles is that we, um, in permaculture, we design from patterns to details. And it's kind of like a tool. You can pull a tool out of your toolbox, but unless the, the, the ethics and principles um, support you in using that tool, then that it's a, there's our opportunity to sort of gauge whether or not an impact that we might have might be degenerative or regenerative or in many cases that we aim for just that tiny little almost pointless slither in the middle of sustainability and so that seems to be the the main thing that i think is missing in people's sort of compass of their minds and their decision making is the ability to inquire into their actions in real time and lay it against some sort of framework of of, of, of ethics and I mean we've we've had like all of this history of, of, of morality ethics and morality coming through from religion and a lot of that was um, yeah, well, maybe we don't go into religion but <laughs> we can uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean for, for me I think that there is an aspect of 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 the, the freedom that we have in the western world in this contemporary age being so so unrestricted that our our behavior is is completely at odds with the with the reality of the context with which within we live so there's you know another framework that is that sort of really comes to mind is this idea that our society lives within the economy and and nature is just this away place that we yes. visit on holidays. <laughs> yes. And that... A growth medium. Whereas nature is the broader context mm. and we are one species and we can, we do have the ability to form communities and then we came up with this abstract idea of the economy. And so the economy is actually this tiny thing that it's the bullseye that everyone seems to be focused on, but contextually... It's just such a it's such a, a much more broader story of life, mm. and so that being able to orient orientate people's awareness in their day to day behaviour 
towards that reality is, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's a challenge. And I think that challenge. whoever, you know, whoever wrote the, the 10 commandments, um, someone put, put them down from a hill. I think there were some stones. It's a pretty rad story, but, um, that were obviously addressing the issues of their time then. Yes. You know, don't like cover your na- neighbor's wife and I don't know, like, yeah, sweet. But you don't, you don't but, need religion to tell you what's being a dick or not, you know, yeah. what's like that, that kind of, you know. And, maybe uh, then you did. Maybe then you did. Yeah. I guess I, I've yeah. written a bit about this on, on my book, which I can share with people as well, but there's also this, I guess, paradigm shift in, in, in some religions where it puts humanity sort of on a pedestal and, and, and everything has been put here to sort of serve us rather than um, what you see when you read about cultures before that and, and many that have carried on to today is the more that we, we live in, in harmony with, with nature and we should be respectful of it. And, mm. you know, you, you have cultures that worship um, animals and the sun and the great blue sky and all these things and see themselves as uh, part of that and respectful towards all these elements, mm. which, I, you know, I, I see so much so much of a more harmonious existence than that I guess yeah. yeah they don't seem to be too afraid to like rewrite the good book like it's almost like we need a third testament which addresses all the lost opportunities of of religion and be like right we're going to cut all that anthropocentrism out and and place the universe uh, <laughs> yes with a little bit more mana <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and maybe we need a, 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 a as a slightly different set of principles for the here and now, you know, if you were rewriting that now, what would that look like? Um, might be, it might be a slightly different story. Yeah. <laughs> Some slightly different focus areas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can't wait, can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> but this story, like being able to, to, um, tell the story and, 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 uh, well, you, you said it so nicely in your TED talk, you know, sort of defining a new story for humanity. Mm-hmm. I think it was, was uh, not paraphrasing there, but, um, it's something that is a real challenge for me. So I've um, left my sort of corporate life a couple of years ago to jump head into this uh, kind of climate space. I feel like it's, it's the work, it's, it's what I need to be. I need to put my shoulder to the wagon, so to speak. Um, but one of the challenges you fall into is you, you learn about all the stuff and it resonates with you and you get so passionate about it. And then you, you jump to the solutions with people. You jump to the details and you, you try and encourage people to recycle their food waste and to, um, you know, to, to get into composting and to try and reduce their meat consumption, to try and reduce their plastic waste. But it's, it, it's potentially a downfall of mine to, to jump too quickly to that. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the being able to share the story of the principles that matter that, you know, that the details are somewhat easy once you, once the story has resonated with you and once you've made the connections, um, then the, you can find the solutions, you know, and, and those things have slowly come into our life over the last few years, like permaculture and, you know, growing as many, um, as much of our own food as we can and just trying to be really conscious consumers um, and trying to live this kind of minimalist, less is more life. Uh, so, so it's something I'm really interested in is finding how you tell that story, how you, how you bring people on that journey um, and how you, yeah, guide them on those principles or at least share those principles so that they can see them. Um, okay. And, and then see if it's something that resonates with them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you said there was interesting in the sense, like how if we can get the patterns or in this case, the, the culture um, or 
to extrapolate on that the shared cultural narratives that unite us or divide us um, if we can get them in place then all of those details just sort of fall like dominoes um, which is absolutely true um, but that is such a challenge eh? like yeah. how to just take someone who is in this infinite growth paradigm um, industrial growth society uh, to just kind of like I don't know like, give them a good slap <laughs> and be like okay next um, I, I've actually just spent the weekend doing that, exactly that and we can speak to that please soon. yeah yeah, um, we're, yeah. I think before we go there I, I just want to like carry the momentum of that train of thought and invert it and I, and I also believe that it's potentially easier to introduce people to the small and slow solutions and the like bite-sized chunks which is exactly what you're doing with the podcast empowering people to do day-to-day things that aren't too radical so that they can kind of get a flavor for it kind of get an appetite and go yeah this feels good because I think we all know we can all deep down sense what's right Mm. for for nature which is inherently ourselves and so I think a lot of it is just to do with um, helping like unlearn the numbness that our culture has conditioned us into and so that I'm I, I am I'm a, I'm about it from coming from both ends, but and so and which we could definitely yeah. talk to because I see that with yeah. with Y Waste and what you're doing there and what what would you see as some of those um, bite sized chunks that that um, mm. you know those bite sized bits of good that that people can mm. can cling on to 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 start with. I think the first or engage with yeah like I I suppose I try and like cast back to like maybe my our parents' generation. Um, people got right into saving the whales yes saving the trees even though the trees are the ones saving us um, like connection with nature would probably be the f- absolute first place that I would start mm. um, and the last place I've finished too but in between there are all of those human things and um, waste is really trendy right now isn't it like when I started my waste maybe seven eight years ago I felt like I was shouting into an empty room now it's really actually quite hip to minimize waste <laughs> so grateful for that um, I, like I see a big um, a lot of momentum with like ethical fashion mm-hmm. is starting to come in mm-hmm. transport is a really big one a lot of people are cycling the, the whole electric vehicle thing is really taking off um, obviously there's some systemic issues with that but the the, the on roads the on ramps are are like fairly numerous and I think that everyone like each an individual passion or sort of interest that someone has has like a what's the sustainable version of this or what's the eco version of this and that sort of um, leads me to the other framework that we discussed around the, the shades of green and people often come into that light green quartile of that matrix where mm. they're you know they're they're like using a bamboo toothbrush or they're like, you know, changing their light bulbs to LED, maybe getting some insulation in their home mm-hmm. or yeah. maybe looking at solar panels if they've, yeah, if, if that's something that's accessible to them. Mm. Um, that would be in the kind of bright green. Cool. So yeah, let's uh, yeah. go back a step. So we're, what we're talking about is this shades of green matrix, which is light green, bright green, 
deep green and dark green. Yes. And and that, you know, you think of this as kind of like steps along the process of mm. you know, different levels at which you can you can engage, mm. uh, which I think is a really beautiful way to, to describe it. You know, you can start at the light green space mm. uh, and that's, that's awesome, you know, and, and, and please take on those steps, take, take, what's, take what steps that you can. Mm. Um, and then as you move along, you can start to get into this really cool world of options and solutions that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we just follow that along to pick up where we were parked just before. Yes. Um, in the bright green space is often a lot of the kind of like more like sexy or like hyped up aspects of sustainability, you know, like like electric vehicles yes. or um, maybe yeah, sort solar of low, panels. Lower waste shopping, you know, the sort of bulk bin buying yeah. shopping stores, which have yeah. become really popular lately. Yeah. yeah. And it's the bright green um sector that like can often fall prey to like um jiggy marketing and like cognitive dissonance and yeah companies can often take advantage of that Mm. that area although like a lot of that is around kind of it's still based in in, in, in the cons- in consumption. Yes. A lot of it is around like, what can I spend my money on? Yes, and, and just yeah. making slightly different choices with yeah. your with your wallet. Yeah, yeah, that's so yeah. true. And so, if 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 we if we were to call that conscious consumption, then um, the the next one would be more around. No, no, no. You'd skip that one and you go straight to dark green, which is more like conscious, like generation. Like no one seems to talk about what, how we make our money. Like it's kind of like, oh yeah, you spend your money on this, like, on these bamboo toothbrushes and this electric car and this green star home. Yeah. But how did you make your money? Like, what did the actual right. impact of your forty-hour week go into? That is your impact. That's what you gift to the world. And and in between that is the deep green. And the deep green is more like, um, in within the language of of the work that reconnects with. Uh, deep ecology the that 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 is more like the holding actions that we do to mitigate or slow down the negative impacts of of of, of the industrial growth society so that's those are where like activism or mm-hmm. or political engagement trying to sort of slow down the mechanics of destruction of, of capitalism and that that's a really you know, obviously that's an effective space if if done well, um, and but it has pitfalls as well along along the lines of sort of personal sustainability. You know, there's a lot of like activists who like are still just shopping at Pack and Save, um, aren't taking mm. care of themselves, their mental health. Um, like I don't want to speak on behalf of groups of humans, but sometimes there's there's a bit of dissonance there where they'll be putting all life and limb on the line for the environment, but they might be like still perpetuating uh, like patriarchal norms or haven't done the sort of decolonization work. And there's sort of, there's a holistic sense of change. Like, you know, climate change is akin to climate justice. And there's, you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a point where we really have to place uh, racial and gender issues alongside ecological issues and consider the the whole movement the, the whole the whole shift as being holistic and that's the something one, that the, the way we, narrative isn't isn't quite 
bringing up. Mm. But I think what you're saying is so important. It's really critical that we look at all parts of mm. uh, of our lives and and have a framework and principles that we can mm. a lens that we can look at those activities through. You know, yeah. what are we doing with our forty hours a week? Um, mm. Where how are we making our money? Where are we spending it? How do we engage with our um, with our food and with our and you know how much how, what, what sort of resources are we consuming just to just to be here? Mm. Um, yeah. How do we define our success? Totally. Yeah. And the groups that I'm a part of that could be considered the activists. There, there is a, there is a strong movement towards people care, but it wasn't always that way. Um, Especially when, especially when you have like really charismatic leaders, maybe they take advantage of the social capital that they gain, and yes. maybe their relationships aren't um, money enhancing for both sides, or those sorts of things. I think that there's a lot more accountability out there now, and that's that's great. Um, and you've come from that a lot of that activist sort of background, mm-hmm. I understand. And and is that partly what led you to doing what you're doing now with? Um, your journey with why waste to you know yeah. to something that was kind of practical and absolutely yeah you, yeah. yeah I think I just got sick of my own voice like, <laughs> I think I just got sick of talking really yeah. you have to act at some point but there's a whole lot that comes between the sensing or knowing that like something's wrong mm. and the acting there's sort of there's a, there's a whole bunch of feelings in between and going out and do it creating an action or a disruption which can have strategic benefits uh, from a place of of fear or rage often just doesn't have the same kind of impact in the long run it polarizes an issue um, it's not sustainable for the person doing it hmm. and so I've sort of moved away from that that response and now um, and I'm not, and, and certainly just saying right now that I, I'm not, my position isn't that there's no place for rage. It's just, if you, if you want to stay in the game for longer than however long it takes for your, like your nervous system to f- frazzle out, um, it's actually more regenerative to act from a place of, of sorrow or grief and truly feel what it is that that is causing that fear or that uncertainty or that anxiety and then i find and there's a whole kind of body of work dedicated to this called deep ecology that we can actually continue and we can connect with our with our deepest ecological aspects connecting ourselves to each other and to nature so that when we are out on that front line we're resourced by a sense of identity and belonging it's not an us versus them kind of narrative it's we are the guardians and the gardeners of the planet and we are standing up for our family Mm. and that's where that's where it moves from that uh, deep green into the dark green which is really outlined by by permaculture by what you it's out it's outlined by the the parameters of 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 nature's reality and permaculture is a way that makes it really accessible and if people are already have uh, like a spiritual 
inclination, then this is really where we, where the rubber hits the road in terms of realizing that we are not alone and that we're, nature isn't this hostile thing that we need to control anymore. It's actually, evolution is just totally um, defined by collaboration um, within, within a, a healthy competition. And, but it's always symmetrical in, in nature. Power is symmetrical. And often when we introduce humans and technology, that's when power becomes asymmetrical. And when we pair that with our rivalrous tendencies, then those dynamics can, they're what create the severe imbalances that we're seeing. So the race to the bottom. Mm, totally. Self-terminating society. <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> so it's really at this point that when we develop that sort of systemic awareness, that it, it's fairly common for people to start to turn to the indigenous cultures of the world a little bit with their tail between their legs and be and, and I'm in, I'm in this place right now where I'm I'm discovering Matauranga Māori I'm I'm engaging with Kopapa Māori and I'm just blown away by what they were able to learn over the sort of thousand ish you know but more years that they were here on this land because they they came in pretty hot and they had a significant um, degenerative impact on the ecology and then what what really blows me away and is such a strong testament to their culture is how they were able to self-regulate and different forms of tikanga came in around the rahui and kaitiakitanga these weren't they didn't arrive with it they Obviously, they arrived with a sense of it because they came from limited, um, you know, island, like parameters of ecology as well. But these were dialed in and refined and applied specifically to this ecological context here in Aotearoa. And so, yeah, there is a sense all over the world where often aware and educated people with Western whakapapa are sort of returning to the indigenous communities and being like, please teach us like how I mean it's up to us to kind of control Z the negative aspects of colonization but there are a lot of methodologies that we can learn on just how to coexist with nature in a, mm. in a, in a regenerative way and one of the one of the pieces that so much knowledge to be tapped into mm, to be to be discovered absolutely, and yeah. learned and yeah and a lot of necessitates a lot of unlearning um, and for me I always this conversation needs to be sort of presence that it's not actually they they're not there's no obligation for them to share their culture with us right and yet it's so in, turn, in the case of Māori in most cases so generous so extremely generous with their culture so that's kind of been yeah something I've been putting a bit of a lot of my attention into actually is just how can we so decolonize our minds. Yes. Uh, honor the agreements that our that our ancestors made with the people of this land, and then together create the society that we need to live in harmony with this land. And I mean, we're all tangata whenua to somewhere, 
just not here mm. <laughs> for all of us. And so, yeah, trying to figure out what my ancestors' relationship was like to the land where I'm, where I'm from, Scandinavia, sort of Celtic regions. And it turns out that they were animists also. They, everything was assigned a beingness and God wasn't like this conceptual away place thing. It was, it was here and it was everywhere and it, it, it kind of gave a, a framework for, for people to um, participate in the, this broader story of life, which is an epic story. <laughs> wow, life is so, so dope. <laughs> Why would we like, ignore that and turn the TV on? Yes. And watch reality TV. Like it's just the yes. whole thing is just a, an inverted sick joke sometimes. So yeah. yeah I'm, I was reconnecting with that story and, you know, writing a new story, but, but that, that's actually an old story as well. Mm. I'm reconnecting with Good that. Time. Yeah. Mm. Beautifully said, man. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> Yarns. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, so where should we go to next? Mm. I... We've we've kind of started in the in the details and then we've moved up into the patterns around yeah. this cultural shift, and I think once people get on board with that, they they can sort of move back down and into the into the doing into the beingness of it. Yes, and um, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road, and I'm seeing where they're going to look for ways to live that. Yeah, so. that's right, and I, I've just kind of I've I've been living sort of. Um, in Mount Maunganui, but I'm living on on the peninsula, which is all Māori land. And so I, I really feel like I've come from the country and I've just arrived in Wellington in the city. And I, I get a feeling that people here and maybe just people who are like more urban and don't, like I've got a huge garden and I don't have um, problems like, like hunting my own meat and fish and growing kai. And yeah, I go to the supermarket all the time. Don't get me wrong. And I, you know, fill up my car with gas but um, when you're in a city and you don't have the sort of um, supply lines of of ethical consumption there's a lot more kind of um, boxes that people are willing to put themselves in mm-hmm. in order to um, align their actions with their with their ethics and so a lot of my friends are vegan and I'm like I'm not a vegan, but now that I'm here, and I don't know where that, I don't know where that came from, when it's in front of me, I'm considering it. Yes. I'm like, oh well, okay. I can't, I can't give this like a systemic analysis, and be like, oh well, this steak is from down the road, and therefore it's more ethical than those almonds which came from California and yes. the drought issues and then, you know, these cashews that came from India, like big wage slavery issues. And like, you know, there's a whole bunch of kind of inconsistencies around being vegan. Hmm. But if you, if you don't have the availability of that contextual awareness, then I actually do see the um, absolute benefit of drawing a line in the sand and being so like no I'm not going to put this in my body and that if you think of like a child that's their like first form of rebellion yes yeah yeah that's so true don't 
oh, I'm not eating that, you know, <laughs> make a mess. And, you know, and, and I really think that that's, there's a lot of power in that. So yeah. I would encourage people to definitely reconsider what they're eating. Well, hold on. I think we'll just jump back because we were we were on this trajectory through the through the framework mm. of, of the shades of green, and then and we mentioned deep ecology, yes. but I didn't pick up the other piece that I dropped down earlier around how just this weekend gone, um, we took forty people into the forest, and we had it was the kopapa was it was around deep ecology, um, and it was sort of supported by plant medicine, and the and there were several different medicines that we brought in but the main the main one is ayahuasca which is these these two plants it's the chacruna leaves and the um the it's the banisteriopsis carpi uh vine and when 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 we drink it and it's in, a, in an extremely held ceremony that we do this um it's there's an incredible sort of inpouring of of nature's consciousness and that is the that is the the deepest ecological slap in the face that we mentioned. It could before. be that aha moment. It's a real big one for people. And then the way that we help integrate that is we then take them out into the forest and we do these deep ecology sessions, exercises, and rituals, reconnecting people with themselves, each other, and nature. That's such beautiful work. And so it's sort of when we were discussing like how do we enact change and you were like oh we just need to change people's stories first that's it's absolutely true but it's really difficult because we're all really hanging on to our worldview in order to validate our quite fragile sense of mm. self and identity and belonging and so and if you cripple that it's really dangerous and mm, it can be yeah, mm, something that people yeah. would like say cling on to really dearly yeah not in a rush to kind of like yeah. Uh, like issue that medicine to everyone that's right you know? that's right and so there's everyone's different and everyone's on a different sort of like place in this whole whole discussion like some people haven't even acknowledged that that the climate is changing yeah. and you know what I don't even really know that but I can feel it and there's like a different sense knowing like logically mm. I don't. I can't feel that it was warmer. The one thing that I can sort of say is that summer seems to have been pushed back. Yes. Like Christmas Day used to be hottest day. Yeah, yeah, we're not cranking, Yeah. And now it's more like Easter is quite warm. Yes. So that that's, so you can definitely feel. Yeah, that's um, happening. So that leads us into kind of this cool question. You know, uh, how do we know uh, what it is that we think that we know around climate change? Mm. And everyone's kind of been confronted by some exponential graphs and um, some sort of like quite like um, oh what's the word for like when everyone's kind of freaking out um, damn that word hysteria hysteria yes yeah hysteria around uh, 1.5 degrees what is that or even? like 350 parts per million none of this I mean I switch off at that um, and I've got a fairly scientific background. I can't even imagine what someone who's like a bit more esoteric in their worldview could even like. And so it's really I'm talking about, about net zero emissions <laughs> and millions of tons of carbon dioxide equivalent to yeah. like. Yeah. You know, so many of my friends, their eyes just, yeah, they're incredibly smart people, but yeah. their eyes just glaze over as soon as you start talking about. Big time. Um, 
numbers or references that they can't mm. uh, that are invisible that they mm. can't see or comprehend or mm. i mean most people would like to hold that they are like evidence-based and they respect the data um but we're emotional creatures and we just we just want everything to be encapsulated in story and so the and, and i'm not at all like projecting this onto other people this is me fully this is totally me like I feel the intellectual person, but again, I can glaze over. And it's an emotional topic when you start hearing about the Gulf Stream slowing down or the, the permafrost melting and methane coming into the atmosphere. It's like, oh. And so I encourage for people, if they're like having doubts about whether or not the climate is changing, to maybe consider the swimming hole that they used to do bombs in when they were kids or like that favorite tree that is now, you know, that favorite forest that is now. Uh, uh, subdivision or like the kuya uh, who who can tell the read the health of the the river based on the amount of eels that used to be in the in the pool you know and now you can't even see the eels the water's choked out and there's just green sludge everywhere and it's like this is qualitative evidence when quantitative evidence is present but not moving and it's that it's the the sense feeling of things are changing and if I, I grew up doing a lot of fishing and so you know it's it's pretty it's pretty evident that there aren't as many fish in the sea there's just that that's the truth um, they're not there as much um, and while there are always excesses to the rule like I did a bit of sailing this summer and, and we just saw heaps of whales and heaps of dolphins and it's like wow it's easy to sort of keep seeing nature uh, healthy mm-hmm. but realizing that our lens is adjusting more and more to it and it being not there as much um, and even just the simple idea of, of referring to it as it is is othering the part of ourself that allows ourself to exist and so this idea that our inability to sense, know, feel the change that's happening is um, kind of preventing us from taking action mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. I'm feeling connected to it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all about ice sheets melting and things like that. And what, yeah. what, it's hard for someone to relate to that yeah. on a personal level. You, you mentioned it's hard to relate. Um, and then there's the piece that's sort of paired with that, which is hard to respond how do we respond to this do we um a common one is like distract we distract ourselves like drink turn on the tv you know and then there's deny like use the power of our logic to like pull out some other data from somewhere legit or not and create a whole new story around that and then there's to rationalize rationalize. you use your 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 mind to rationalize these Mm -hmm. things and, and and kind of past the responsibility buck I think always yeah. as well as you know I yeah. sense a lot of that that yeah. it's it's not by me it's not up to me it's not yeah you know this is, well, this uh, is outside of separate separate from me or even yeah like you say that what you said earlier like oh, I've just got to go to work and I think this is the conversation I have with a lot of people close to me where I talk about uh, the climate crisis mm. and we talk about this issue of uh, connecting the dots for people and I think mm. a, a lot of my close circle struggle to see how this 
is affecting them, mm. um, like you touched on before. But also, they're just trying to survive. They're just yeah. trying to mm. uh, battle mental health issues, or just get to work, or just find any sort of meaning in their life. They're just, you know, let alone just pay the bills and mm. um, go through all the challenges that life presents you with. Yeah. So it seems kind of, I think for a lot of people, they voice a concern that, that I can see. I know. I understand. There's an issue there, but that feels pretty low down on the list of right of challenges that i'm facing right yeah. now gotta pay the mortgage you pay the mortgage exactly yeah. yeah my kid's getting bullied at school yeah you know yeah um i've got a whole lot of other stuff which is mm. yeah which is taking my attention so there's sort of like this kind of these gates or this kind of cascade of of reactions that we can have and yeah there's the distraction and then the denial and then and then once we accept that it's a thing then we're we're still like fairly fragile emotional nervous system and then anxiety can creep in and then next minute overwhelm or complete sort of dips of hopelessness and that is it's really full on and i sort of see it i've been working with the school strike for climate um kids a fair bit and um bringing the experience that I've had from the Extinction Rebellion and seeing adults go through um, that the, the big blowout, you know, beyond overwhelm to hopelessness, is is um, <clears throat> it's much more pronounced in teenagers because they're already going through all of this. They haven't really they haven't got their resilience yet. And the interesting thing is, hope isn't actually the the self it's not the medicine to hopelessness it's more a sense of um surrender and acceptance that life is going to be different and that the common narrative is around mitigation mm-hmm. but really we're, we're we're kind of beyond that point and it's around adaptation and we can adapt and we can make a more beautiful world than we currently have through the process of adaptation. There's, there's absolutely no way that we continue, can continue the lives that we have currently with the parameters and trajectories that we have, unless our and solutions... just plant a few more trees. It's not, that's right. That's right. You know, unless our solutions are on the same exponential curves as our problems, which they're, which they're really not anywhere near. Um, we, we, we can't fix... A, climate change with the blockchain <laughs> and that's the only thing that's exponential at this point right like there's a bunch of other things but waste is also seems to be something that people can understand people don't understand exponential curves we've seen that but they do understand um that waste is is inherently uh inefficient and almost offensive to um people who want to get the most out of something and that doesn't that doesn't have like political boundaries you know that you don't have to be like a, a a hippie on the far left to to not to be anti-waste you can be uh, an extremely conservative privileged business owner and you still really don't like waste and so what what, what i found is that this these sort of big picture ideas can be carried 
by the common narrative of, of waste minimization quite effectively because everyone kind of can come to the table. Mm. Um, polarizing a topic is, is the most, most effective way of stalling any progress on that topic. Yes. And it's... And if we're creating teams, you know, mm. it's, it's pretty hard, you, hard to argue against less waste as being totally. a good thing. Something, yeah. very, something easy for everyone to buy into. Yeah. It's sort of really a really straightforward action point that even if you are in the sort of like depths of despair you can still take the compost out to the backyard uh, if, even if you know you're really like struggling to get out of bed you still have the choice of whether or not to do that buy that thing or mm. to put it in the wrong place and and so I'm always quite aware that like the work that we do is often about doing less bad so mitigation yes and so that's why so an um, example of mitigation might be uh, switching to an electric vehicle perhaps or just to give people some some um, color around that and uh, or an example of mitigation might be like carbon offsets mm. um, would that would you agree with that yeah and, and yeah. whereas an example of adaptation might be changing the way that you do the thing yeah change the way that you live on this planet change mm. the way that you travel um, or more so maybe um, growing your own food mm. engaging with your soil mm. in your backyard yeah um, and even things like changing what you spend your 40 hours a week on more holistic sort of life changes mm. rather than mm. um, rather than just making something slightly greener along the way or right. looking to balance things out somehow yeah and you were you were saying that you quit your job and were was sort of you were almost in a mitigation space and then you were like you called it and you've spent the last some time consciously adapting and that's how's that gone for you how's it feel it's given me a real sense of purpose mm. and there's still moments of exasperation and despair and frustration uh, there but there's also this incredible sense of um, far more meaning and purpose mm. and uh, discovered new things about myself that I didn't know was there you know like previous to two years ago um maybe three years ago you know I would have someone come and mow my lawns and an arborist come in once a year and you know cut back all the trees whereas now like I, I take care of everything ourselves and I've got three compost bins and a worm farm and I've got multiple little veggie plots and beautiful fruit trees and beautiful native trees and you know sort of feel like I'm connected to and a guardian of this this uh you know not in in the modern sense particularly large and it's a 500 square meter section but I feel super connected to the space and when I walk around the corner on my block and I can hear the birds singing and the trees around my home it just gives me this this warmth mm. um, so I've become this kind of green thumb you know mm. avid gardener who uh, finds my meditative relaxing place by stirring my compost bins and I just that, that I just would never have guessed that mm. before I started actively engaging with with these activities mm. so there's far more value I've found to, to be found in those adaptation kind of behaviours rather than just I you know I still have the kind of materialistic part of me that's like oh, I want to get a Tesla and even though I feel those feelings now that's certainly attractive to want to do that I think there's more value to my well-being to be 
spreading compost around the garden with my three-year-old son. Obviously, you know, I'm far more value than that. Uh, so, yeah, I think adaptation is where it's at. You know, these activities are where it's at. You know, getting getting um, getting your hands dirty. Yeah, I wish that people listening right now could see your face. Like you're so lit and animated by the satisfaction that's so much more tangible than the instant gratification of how we fill the those gaps in our lives of the words that you've said like purpose mm. and meaning and um, this this role that you almost have now of, of the kaitiaki you know you're actively stewarding this place in the world that you love so and raising the next generation there and those are pretty pretty big pretty meaningful kind of I mean it, I just can't quite see how you'd put it on a billboard like next to like yes. a cigarette company or a Coca-Cola like it's just that, that that is actually what we're trying to those are the options yeah that's what we're trying to like reveal to people it's and, like, it's, and it's yeah, yeah it's really hard to, to put that to words you know I mm. mentioned to you before we started recording that um, I have a a worm farm yeah. um, but before engaging with that, you know, I was kind of ambivalent to it. And then my, my parents-in-law, my, my in-laws brought me one uh, as a present. And once you start using it, suddenly there's this beautiful circular economy going on in my own backyard where any, any leftover scraps from vegetables that we, that we cook with don't go on the rubbish. They go into this worm farm, mm. which turns into this beautiful worm casting fertilizer and this beautiful worm tea which I then use to grow more vegetables in our own backyard two meters away from our kitchen that I don't have to buy from anywhere and then this this circle keeps going around and and you there's something special that comes from that Uh, it's it feels right you know it feels natural Uh, and I would love to would love for more people to experience that yeah beautiful uh, it sort of reminds me of um, my experiences just recently. I've just been um, had a month on a, on a Polynesian voyaging canoe sailing around New Zealand as a part of a, a co-popper that aims at sort of reviving the art of celestial navigation. And in everything in, in Te Ao Māori, the world of Māori, everything has a meaning. It, like, there's always a recognition or an acknowledgement and there's just it it seems that there's just like layers and layers of meaning to everyday everyday actions and the idea of like do I put my banana skin in the rubbish or do I put it into this this thing plays into this whole biologically circular rich worldview of of wealth and health for everything and then this one is just like a closed loop of of decay and it's I, I, it is hard to reveal to people what, what, what we're missing out on by not by not essentially respecting the biosphere and keeping the technological sphere circular like that you know a lot of like recycling and like plastic mitigation and like that's all real hip great storytelling but it's all quite quite um, statistically less significant 
than this simple amount of living material that moves through our society and doesn't wind up returned back to where that living material came from. And, and around 50% of our mm. rubbish output is, is this bio, kind of material. Biodegradable, yeah. Which is, which is a big deal. Um, and we spoke, we spoke about peak oil. We're also experiencing peak soil. And that's, you know, that kind of top five or six inches of the earth is, it's where all of our life comes from. It's where all of our, our carbon is stored. Uh, sorry, not all. The carbon piece is, is, is complex. It's where our food is grown and it's the ecstatic skin of life where a handful will just have billions, if not trillions of of microbes and nematodes and worms and all of these things that are so alive and they're all kind of cooperating to support the complexity of life that's stacked upon it. And it's, that's the complexity that we all marvel at and we all love. And so I think at some point we have to take our hats off to the soil and just kind of, I don't know, I, I often sort of find myself championing the soil and just being like, I mean, I'm not alone, of course, but... Um, big ups <laughs> give it up for the soil you know oh my gosh yes. yeah oh my gosh yes. so that's a um, a, a good one and I think the where we left off before about waste being focused on doing less bad um, when we can such a yeah such a shortcoming when we can like talk about minimizing waste is doing less bad but then that waste gets transformed into soil then all of a sudden the whole thing flips into doing more good and that is where I think you you experience the changes in your life whereas before you were mitigating and you're just trying to do less bad and that's cool but it chews you out after a while and so kind of what I'm seeing is when people take a pay cut release a few of those societal expectations or whatever it is that, and then directing their life to doing more good then we go beyond sustainability and we can move into like a regenerative space a healing relationship with nature and that that is that helps me sleep at night <laughs> um, and that's what that's what lights people up like what I'm seeing and I think that's really interesting because how do you do that um, when over half of our of our population lives in a city um, there's only so many like native like restore wetland restorations or replanting days or something that can help us just feel okay um, and I and I think what's happening is the the there's actually like a trauma creeping in into our society and it's diagnosed more and more often as the pre-traumatic stress disorder of reading the writing on the wall seeing you know the you know the um well you know the these reports that come through and you know these teenagers are reading it too and they're like why why are you telling me to go to school to learn science when you're all ignoring the science that says that we've only got 12 years of of this society left and there's a lot of a lot of kickback coming through psychologically and whenever one of my friends uh, sort of reveals that they are feeling anxious or depressed to me like 
I mean, I'm only just learning how to respond to that kind of thing because it's becoming more and more common. But it seems to me that it, it just actually makes a lot of sense that people are feeling sick when the the ocean through which they swim is also sick. That seems to make plenty of sense to me. And if we're projecting that onto like everyday aspects of our lives, I can totally see how that would overwhelm someone. So yeah, the that's really when we need to start changing our lives and move out of the the big concrete structures and all of the yeah. I mean but there's so much wealth of culture in a city too. Um there's also something about seeing a piece of art or hearing a song that can awaken our inherent humanity the same way a beautiful sunset can. So I really, really enjoy that um, kind of aspect to talking about this issue, drawing it away from, oh my God, everything's bad and we need to do less of it and just being like, okay, hold on, what what's good and let's do more of that. Just as you're telling that, um, uh, talking through that, I you know I, I lost a close friend earlier this year, and leading up to him passing away, you know he'd expressed to all of us and all of his family multiple times about how just how frustrated he felt about how the the world, you know how people why can't everybody just be nicer to each other? Why can't everybody just love each other? Um, why is there so much uh, pain? And suffering and that was really really challenging for him to mm. come to terms with and so I've seen firsthand you know that that pre-TSD that um, despair and how how bad uh, that can get and so it can absolutely mm. yeah. uh, to resonate with that and it's uh, really important that people are able to find ways that they can when they're dumped with all this information particularly like the the kind of the science the people in what i see like i consume a lot of the science stuff information on these and, and a lot of people in that space are angry and, and heavily concerned but when you read this this stuff as a non-scientist it's like well what can i you know i can't engage with you on your level i can see that you're concerned i can see that this is bad i can see that also there's not much happening mm. how can i how can i make a difference and so important to be able to move from that this is more bad, more bad, more bad or can I do a little bit less bad to focusing on the good and, and, and doing more good mm. um, because that's where you can mm. heal a little bit. Maybe it comes back to that surrender to it mm. you referenced earlier on yeah. um, and then being able to focus on the good and, and mm. moving forward and mm. engaging with that. Yeah. Particularly things that you can do on a regular basis, mm. you know, like focusing on the the beautiful soil that you have in your on your backyard or if you're in an apartment maybe finding people that you connect with that, that care about these things or um, getting out into nature anytime that you can and, mm. um, and I'm kind of aware that the less bad more good sort of passing over of that that threshold could could easily be misinterpreted as like some kind of ecological bypassing and 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 yet there's that I suppose there is a danger of that, but it's also like a really effective framework between that degenerative action and regenerative action 
and you know when you're you're in the more good place because you there's feedback loops from nature coming in and feeding you like the way that uh, in, uh, the soil the actinomycetes is like a um, a spore that when it comes into contact with our skin a fungal spore it releases serotonin in our brains and these are just like you know science is kind of catching up to what an old wives tale would have been saying for for generations like go outside and just get your hands dirty and you know like stuff like that is I mean, it's sort of <laughs> another example of that might just be that our our story of the world is is becoming more and more interwoven the more we know about it and so we'll, we'll get to the point where we'll where we'll say oh actually um like in terms of all of the particles in our body this is all we're all just come we've just come from the earth and the earth is our our ancestor physically and then you know someone the komatua might show up from the marae and just be like great welcome like <laughs> glad you're here now <laughs> this is papa tuanuku and this is ranginui and these are our, let me introduce you yeah and so it's sort of like the story of separation that's played out over the last however many thousands of years has really come to a crisis point where we are so so far removed from ourselves as nature and we are so separate from the context and it's that re-contextualization that i that i that i think is it's what i'm trying to achieve with the deep ecology work it's what is happening through various different kopapa that are that are really effective. I love seeing what some of the like schools are doing with the way that they're introducing Te Ao Māori and Te Reo Māori into schools. Really, really, I, like it just seems so much more straightforward to to bake our relationship with nature into our culture than try to rationalise it and prove it through evidence. So. Um, I just try and keep an eye out for that and support it where I can. <laughs> and at the same time, like oh, you mentioned, your friend was frustrated that we couldn't just be kind to each other. There's really something about that point where you might, where we might get overwhelmed or, and we need to surrender where we're just, all we're really doing is trying to move away from the old world and create the new world. And if the, uh, you know, if it's, um, this is the words of, uh, Professor Professor Jim Bendel, who wrote a paper on deep adaptation, if it's possible that we will go extinct in this generation, and it's probable that we'll have experienced a significant, potentially catastrophic disruption, and it's inevitable that life as we currently live it cannot go on, which is already proven true by COVID. Um, then then it's not um, kind of what we do, but how we do it. That's That seems to be the sort of logical inquiry after it, once we figure out that, like, we're facing the impossible, it's, okay, well, who am I as I face the impossible? And how do I carry myself? And am I a dick? And am I, or am I kind? Or, and it, it sort of, like, next minute you're carrying on like you're you're a buddhist and you go well well, what have we got to learn from these people you know and so there's there's a lot to be said for just 
volunteering at the SPCA or caring for your grandma. I think, you know, we've talked about how uh, like draining it can be to be an environmental advocate. And so if we're focusing, if we're flipping the narrative into this regenerative do more good space, there's really a lot to be said for just living every moment as kindly and respectfully and aware of our privileges and our our microaggressions and the way that um, sort of the, the intersection between colonization and patriarchy plays out every single day and the, the awareness of, of that and my privileges has totally changed the way I can, can conduct myself and that to me seems to kind of represent like a, a degree of the change that needs to be made ecologically yet it plays out in the social space and the way that the way that the behavior that we have towards the women in our lives is sort of one and the same uh, or symbolic yet entirely causationally related to the way that we treat Gaia and mother nature I think it was Eckhart Tolle who said the if you feel like you're enlightened you know spend a weekend with your family and this is one thing that I've had to do is really really go into healing the relationships with my mother because how can I carry on like this earth defender if I'm not you know tending that garden at home too so yeah I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there's a real social aspect to our ecological mahi that we need to do and I mean an image might come image, image kind of comes to me of like some kind of maverick um, activist like with ripped jeans who's like I don't know strapped himself to the train tracks or the coal mine whatever but like comes home and maybe is mean to people or something like or ma- like that martyrdom we can't lose our momentum and I feel like there's a bit of a one step forward two steps back if the people who are leading the change can't honour the people who are doing the humble work you know the the, the, the folks who are we, we discussed earlier like the that bottleneck during the, the COVID lockdowns of um, essential work and non-essential work and what a, what a, what a, what a great line in the sand to draw and why, why can we not continue to draw that line and start to appreciate the people that really matter and mm-hmm. yeah there's um yeah I, I've sort of played that out as much as I wanted to but there's it's a it's a, it's a double edge kind of sword I, I haven't heard it so eloquently put before like this connection between social change and our you know ecological mm-hmm. behaviours yeah, there's so much in that, and I, it makes me think of what you said before about surrendering first, and how that maybe that part of surrendering to this, to what's going on, can help you then come from a place of right, okay. Mm. So, what kind of person do I want to be? Mm. How do I want to engage? Uh, and, and that's yes, yeah, so 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 well put, and it speaks to something that uh, resonates with me. Sort of coming through that is how much value there is to. Um, to getting to thinking about these things and to getting involved like 
it's not just about reducing your waste. It's mm. there's so much more value to be found in this space for yeah. people that are willing to, mm. to to think about it first of all and to surrender to it and to to get engaged. Mm. So much value. And I, I think I'd really like that to come through to people that you can pretty quickly move from the doing less bad to the doing more good. And, and, and that's on us in terms of how we frame it, you know, mm. talking about like the word waste is, is not mm. definitely not sexy enough and doesn't do it justice enough. Um, it's the word people know and sort of understand, but I don't look at the banana peels on my compost bin as waste. They're, yeah. they're beautiful soil waiting to happen. They're, they're ready to improve mm. the, um, the living nature of my mm. of my land. Mm. It's not my land, you know, but the land I'm lucky enough to to be spending time with, mm. you know, while I'm alive. Mm. Um, so interesting to find the right words to yeah to encapsulate that. We talk about reducing waste, but that's does not mm. begin to do it justice. In- increasing resources, increasing increasing fertility. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Reducing waste. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's totally the challenge with white waste is. We're using waste as a platform to talk about big picture ideas. Yes. Um, but everyone's just so used to everything being in sound bites. And um, yeah. we are kind of like, yeah, trying to come in and add value to someone's life by minimizing waste. But I think the magic really happens later on when they realize that they're improving the health of their soil and and it's when their children fall in love with the worms and when their or when their office starts to regard the worm farm the same way they would like a, a cat that lives in, at work or something like that that's when people start to realize that technology isn't going to save us from ourselves it's by so many orders of magnitude less scalable than bio, biological solutions and biological like that's where it started you know the worms created the soil so why would we not adopt that same ancient technology to return our surplus of nutrients back to the soil and so i really i do take a lot of pleasure in what i'm doing but we've identified a, a challenge for me is how to front load the complexity of of the last kind of hour that we've been talking into like a uh, you know, a byline <laughs> or, yeah, or, or yeah. an elevator pitch. Um, yeah, I suppose you could say that we're like empowering people to, to fall in love with nature mm. through their own shit. And when you see it, like when you see, you put some kumara peels or, you know, banana peels or whatever it is into your, you know, wind farm or compost bin and you come back a little while later and it's turned into this beautiful, rich, mm. black, black gold mm. it's uh it, it hits you it sort yeah. of gets you yeah like wow that's that's pretty crazy <laughs> that's pretty cool yeah maybe it's worth talking to just for just just for a second in case anyone's sitting there wondering like but what's so bad about it going to landfill yeah you know is mm. it, it's organic it's just going to biodegrade it's like you know we've all grown up chucking our apple cores out mm. well maybe not all of us but chucking our apple cores out the window when we're driving and mm. you know it's just going to biodegrade mm. um What's the issue with it going to a landfill? Yeah. So when, when we throw an apple core out the window, it, um, it breaks down in, a, in, a, in an aerobic environment. 
um, unless like a possum or a stoat or something eats it first. But um, the, um, once it's in a landfill and compressed along with all of these other kind of Frankenstein materials of various descriptions, <laughs> there's there's a, there's, a, there's an intentional lack of oxygen because they just they pack everything in tight and um, it's unable to break down. Uh, it's unable to compost and so it, it rots and it produces uh, a leachate, like a liquid for the solids kind of turn into a liquid and they they'll sort of drain into our water tables and affect affect the land quite um, significantly and then the rest of it transforms into a gas and it turns into methane which is 30 times worse than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas and we're you know carbon dioxide is kind of like the the benchmark or like the um the 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 yardstick for how we measure um the effects on the climate the the greenhouse effects but methane is kind of like the big dark horse i don't know unpredictable one because it is so much um more acute in its with its impact but it's also kind of like there's heaps of it out there being generated by geographical interactions with biology um and so it's methane is kind of considered to be one of these significant feedback loops of which there are a number um where if enough if the temperature goes up enough and the sort of ice caps and the tundra and like a lot of these places melt then a lot of methane will be released and the whole thing will sort of start to compound and speed up which um, evidence is suggesting that it is and so that's that's a pretty wild kind of one to get your head around it sort of spun me out for like a f- solid couple of weeks you know like if that happens every now and again you know the yeah. Amazon will burn and you know Australia will burn and the next minute we can't even see the sun and yeah. you, you sort of just go whoa we are transgressing the planetary boundaries this it's it's the same as I was saying before like if this was your mum if this was our mother or our wife or our daughter or our sister this would be closely akin to a, a physical transgression of their boundaries too and so these planetary boundaries if we look them up the um Stockholm Resiliency Centre um, articulates them incredibly well. If people could check that out. There's there's like a... Um, the infograph just shows like a, a, a circle and then our our impact, the data, is creeping out from the centre. Yes, and the circle is kind of like our... the acceptable kind of parameters of what the planet can handle and then everything beyond that is crossing its boundaries. And... Um, yeah, there's still lots of lots of aspects of our behaviour that are within those boundaries, but the ones that are being crossed are being crossed significantly, and it's that cascade of of negative effects which are kind of coming back as as feedback loops and sort of invoices that we can't actually really pay at the moment. So there there is a, there is a lot of science which is is being communicated well, and and I and I kind of get the feeling that the what what slowed us down for so long was the culture of scientists needing to improve uh, uh, needing to communicate their findings objectively which i can see the importance of doing but also um we really just need more 
more scientists, more water scientists, more air scientists, all these people who specialize in these things to actually just break down. And, and they are like, I've seen videos of people just like reading their findings and then like their lips just trembling and like choking up. And it's, it's that emotion that's missing from the conversation that is um, sort of stopping, I think a lot of people from, from taking it seriously. And then conversely, there's like so much emotion with like really quite trivial things. And so there's a little bit of a, I mean, COVID's a great example. Something that's can be related to like a lot closer to home. Like my year, my, like my landlord, um, he passed away just last week, but during COVID we had to take it quite seriously because he's, he was, com- uh, he had cancer, he, he was immunocompromised. And I think a lot of people have elders and maybe they have like some respiratory something. And we were all able to imagine ourselves or our loved ones dying. And so COVID just was like, boom, everyone was on it. Whereas the, the changing of the climate is, is sort of like one or two steps removed in its reality. And um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been points where when I felt, when I've kind of prayed for it to speed up, um, I, of course, I don't, I'm not holding that right now, but wouldn't it be great if... Um, That's a in the face. There was just so. something <laughs> that was just so clearly distinguishable mm. and and if anyone who knew sort of anything about something was in the room they'd be like there is how about this and that and that and that and, and I think we're, there just seems to be a strong um, collective amnesia paired with um, a cognitive dissonance that's preventing us with from really truly recognising this uh, as a society and I don't really, I don't, like, it doesn't actually, like, I don't, I'm not shaking my fist at society because we're, we're just, like, actually really limited in our cognitive abilities. Like, we're so good at recognizing danger mm-hmm. when it's staring us in the face. It's scary. It has fangs and it roars and it, it's, it's scary and we, like, we fight or we freeze or we... Um, a recent response I learned about was... Um, oh, fight! Oh, yeah, fight or flight, and then freeze, and then which is also not spoken about. And then there was another one which was appease. You know, like the our ingrained psychological responses are not geared for such complex threats, which don't have immediate uh, response response needed. So we're kind of like trying to like convince people of this idea to respond to something that we are like our nervous system and our psychology is just totally unprepared for um Hmm. which kind of which sort of led me to the content of the ted talk which is actually about trying to live this um i suppose like most like a way to describe it might be like energy descent reality or a permaculture lifestyle um, that the simple life is actually good for us. Yeah. And, and, and trying to communicate that it's, I'm not making any huge sacrifices. Like I've really been having quite a life. Like I have a huge adventure, but I, I sort of maybe arrive at it through slightly less sophisticated ways 
which is which is also a lie. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm a DJ. I love setting up these really complex sound systems and like, you know, get everyone in, in a in a big groove and we all dance. And but even that is quite primal. We just happen to plug it into amplified sound. Um, but I think it's a little bit different to like some of the crazy ways that humans will get kicks <laughs> which um wow wow haven't we just come up with the most outrageous expression of life like like if i was nature uh experiencing itself through a human which i am <laughs> i would be really actually quite like entertained by the whole thing but it, it does beg the question when this kind of whole big big brained uh, hominid experiment is going to sort of have the plug pulled on it mm. you know the petri dish sort of has to the edges the edges of the petri dish are like kind of closing <laughs> yeah. in fast yes and um, usually you know what happens to a population in the petri dish either like regulates itself or it collapses and mm. so um Collapse, you know, that title of the Jared Diamond book is uh, an incredible, incredible read. He, Jared Diamond also wrote Guns, Germs and Steel, great, also a great book. But Collapse um, takes a look at different cultures around the world, different civilizations, and analyzes the, the kind of the, the tipping points and the sort of um, breadcrumbs of, of, of cl- clues of where they where they went wrong and how they kind of didn't quite get the message to to change and then they collapsed and so the conclusion probably wouldn't surprise you but it's um they're all the writings on the wall and we just are just completely ignoring it the same way that the the people of Rapa Nui continued to build their uh, moai Sculptures, even even when there were no trees left on the island, sort of. There are just so many um, examples of us just plowing on ahead. The beautiful, beautiful gift of COVID, well, gift uh, not trying to put it in a positive sense, but one of the um, because of the immediate sort of feedback loops that you saw, it was really easy to galvanise a team of five million with the simple message of stay home, save lives, mm. and you know that, that climate crisis is really missing this. Um, really elegant uh, calling you know to that, that people can understand okay mm. okay I stay home I save lives cool mm. I can do that mm. um, and with climate and our interactions with with mother earth in general like the more complex the issues the, the more likely it is to breed procrastination mm. you know, it's just it's so it can feel so complex and mm. so overwhelming mm. but I love the way that you have built this enterprise to you know as a path into actually helping people do more good mm. so uh tell us about how that how how white way started and mm. and the journey that you're on mm. there i'd love to hear about it yes yeah, sweet um i just had a tour uh djing playing music uh <laughs> around the world you know i play some really cool gigs the full moon party in Thailand and played like festivals in Europe and you know in America like Burning Man and I don't know it was such a great adventure but there's only so many um, airports and taxis and hotels and you know like 
I mean, if I was a real rock star, I would have got to that point of like throwing a TV out the window. You know, it was just, I think that that plays out. And, and at the same time, I was also visiting intentional communities and, um, volunteering on permaculture projects and learning a lot. And I found, I found that I was having a lot, I was having an impact. I was actually helping communities. And, but I had this fairly strong sense that it's not what a place can do for me. It's what I can do for a place. And I, I grew up in Tauranga, which most people will know is sort of like the retirement village of New Zealand. <laughs> and um, and our, the, uh, I don't think many would disagree when I say that our, our leadership in Tauranga is a shambles. Um, I think the government actually just took back the, the running of our city because the councillors were, uh, weren't up to it. <laughs> um, and and I and I really had a sense that like I, I needed to go home and, and, and do this work for my people and, and the Fenua that raised me. And so um, I came home and I started calling myself a sustainability consultant, which is classic fake it till you make it, um, carry on. Um, I stand by the integrity of the work that I did, and I really brought a lot of care to my work and feel like I delivered a lot of value to to my clients um, but it wasn't always like smooth sailing in terms of money and I was glad to still be playing music at the time so it kept, kept the wheels from falling off but the invoices that did get paid were often waste related um, but yeah like I said it, it, you, everyone everyone can agree that waste is dumb <laughs> yes and well waste probably didn't have the same sort of profile then that it does now. It, um, it grew, and, it, and, and we grew along with it. Um, I'm not sort of claiming that you know any of that was because of me. This is this is sort of like the zeitgeist of, of now, and we we kind of rode that wave. And and I've, I've I feel like I'm no longer faking it <laughs> when I. Well, it's funny, you know, like you earn your stripes. You know, yeah. you 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 sh- cut your teeth, and you get a bit of street cred and then next minute when you talk people listen and you know I was in my mid-twenties at that point and I didn't expect people to listen to me um, and I don't now but people do and I think I'm very grateful for that um, but the the journey that YWAS has taken has been sort of a, um, like trying to find um that elegant intersection between supporting myself and my loved ones mm-hmm. and having an impact. And you, you went through it and every, like this is something I hear a lot from people in my life. It's just, everyone's craving a purpose and they don't want to be part of the problem. They want to be part of the solution, but there's just not that many jobs out there, like really difficult to find something that means something. And so that was my, that was my kind of core desire, um, beyond, playing music and sort of helping build culture and, and giving people an experience of embodiment and maybe we used to we, we still do like organize these parties and the culture at the parties is um, you know we, we really dial down on consent culture and people are treating them it's, it's a totally different vibe at our parties to, in, to most other parties so there's like that social impact piece but I needed something day to day I needed my bread and butter to um, help me sleep at night I've always been an insomniac and um, that's not a poor me thing it's just just I'm geared like that and 
it turns out I sleep really well if I feel like I'm kind of doing something for something that's bigger than me. Um, and I have this, I sailed back, me and my two brothers, we sailed from Tonga to New Zealand when I was uh, 18. We've done the trip a number of times, but this, this time all the, all the brothers were on the boat and um, it was quite a while. We went through this gnarly storm, this big gale. It was hectic for a few days. It was pretty hairy. But once we came out, it was just flat for two or three days, so flat. It was just, it was just blue up and then this black line of the horizon and then blue just down, deep blue. Yeah. And I launched the kayak off the waka and then paddled and paddled and paddled. Um, and I sort of, it was amazing. It was pretty wild. And I looked back and the waka was just this tiny dot on the horizon. And just the, oh, the amazingly like weighty sense of insignificance um, came over me. And at a great time, because an 18-year-old male is like starting to think they're pretty cool, you know. <laughs> And um, I've never really lost the desire for that feeling. I, like, a, I think maybe people who know me might sort of um, disagree and, and say that maybe I, I like to think I'm important. But I think um, deep down, like, oh, I get so much comfort in knowing that there is something bigger than me. And I think maybe that's why a lot of people get into um, to believing in, in a sense of God. It's, it's really important that we don't place ourselves at the center of the universe because then we have the whole universe on our shoulders and all of that responsibility and so I'm, I just kind of would way rather pick up a paddle and get on the waka of yes. of life and and sing the songs and be part of the team you know um, and so that was what really fueled the development of Why Waste mm-hmm. we started a um, this is a pretty long getting the, getting the long story it's out good, now man. aren't good, I like it <laughs> um, the and so I, I sort of identified that there was all this waste that was um, going to landfill that was biodegradable. And I was like, oh, you know, in my recommendations to my clients, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, just someone needs to pick this, separate this compost and pick it up, compost it. And, you know, they'd read it and they'd be like, well, who, where, you know, right. like, what's the, you've said that this thing should happen, now what? And it was like, oh, I've said that someone should do the thing and <laughs> like, I don't know. I, it, I don't know if it's many people's response to, to then do the thing, but that was my response. I was like, established a need. That's <laughs> where you want to do that. That's where all good businesses come from. Mm. Scratching a niche that you can already see. Yeah. Something that you've already validated as a solution is required. That's right. And so I, I bought a van and I bought heaps of wheelie bins and, um, I just started going around to businesses and being like, hey, have you got compost? And they're like, oh, yeah. And it was like, it was a pretty hard sell because, you know, dollars and cents and it wasn't quite like, there wasn't as much like sort of social kickback for making ethical business choices then. But um, Did you have a place where you could go and compost all this? Yes. Cool. So that was, that was very fortunate. Yeah. Um, that was also, the reliance on that facility was also what upended the service in the end. Okay. And um, so... That service got to the point where um, I was unable to um, to continue with it, mm-hmm. but I, I was also getting into vermicomposting, mm-hmm. um, and I 
and some people were, were yeah I think it was a conversation between myself and a, sh- and a chef right. and the chef was a vegan and um, was appalled at the, at the way that their kitchen um, was was managing their waste and they were taking the waste back to their home and putting it in their compost but their compost was just overflowing yeah. commercial levels of waste yeah. and um, and the chef was asking me if I could help and um, and I was sort of saying oh you know worms can like process this waste a lot faster yeah. a lot faster than the microbes and um, maybe you should get a worm farm and they were just like yeah and then we sort of just it just transpired that I was bringing worm farms oh, around to the, ah! <laughs> and um, I think I I think I charged him 20 bucks a month yes. and tried it out and he kept wanting more and more worm farms and then and then and then yeah he's a really nice guy I should actually contact him um, and I'm gonna definitely gonna contact him and be and express some gratitude for the, the that sort of period of like um, concept development and um, you know, prototyping first customers are so valuable that, yeah. that first follower totally you know, yeah <laughs> first follower at a gig the first person that I've done it's like they're the key totally. okay. and I think I've only adjusted the um, the, the the pay situation by like five bucks and so it's pretty much pretty much how it started and so now we offer work instead of driving around burning fossil fuels picking up waste and taking it to an away place it's very important psychologically we do still burn fossil fuels but once a month instead of once once a week and we've just bought an electric tricycle so we can um, service like urban environments um, with our with our porridge in the morning and <laughs> some battery power but um, it's sort of when we plug when I plug it into all of these sort of frameworks that can help us deduct whether or not something is regenerative there are so many it really checks out this new solution it's um, you know it's, it's helping unpack our views on waste and like you were saying before like waste is actually a valuable thing if, if it's in the right place mm-hmm. no such thing as waste just stuff in the wrong place uh, I think Charlie McGee says that from the formidable vegetable sound system that's a song actually no such thing as waste really good song cool um, so there's already that piece in people's minds um the waste isn't going into the landfill and not being um, converted into methane, which we've talked about. And then it's also producing a solid fertilizer that's like, well, we could talk for ages about how incredible worm castings are. So, so, so they're like the glue that holds soil together. And they're also like a slow release fertilizer because the worms cover their shit in like this mucus. Um, as it comes out of their ass and it, like, it means that the rain, the rain won't wash it away straight wow. away and it sort of like sits in the soil and slowly releases all that fertilizer and then there's a liquid fertilizer which people love because it's great for like indoor plants and um, at some point it got some kind of reputation as being quite magic which it is um, but not chemically like most people think it's more biologically alive mm-hmm. worm, worm tea um, and so a lot of worm tea, if you buy it like off the shelf or at the market in a bottle, um, it's been locked off from oxygen and is there, therefore died and it isn't actually much good to your plants at all. Um, and then there's kind of the, the sort of social aspects of this which make it even more regenerative, which is reconnecting people with nature, um, 
um, gathering sort of like bridging intergenerational conversations around behavior change and waste. And then there's also the kind of bridge between what the change that people make in their private lives and their public lives. And so a lot of people who have worm farms at home are now contacting us, asking us to put worm farms into their office. And we've found that our organizational uptake of our service is, is significantly more than our residential uptake now. Um, it's, it's really, really applicable to a lot of the harder to find um, eddies of, well, not eddies, but like very efficient straight lines into the ground of waste in society. And councils are regarding it as um, a really effective solution for commercial waste. Councils are able to, they're able to con- well, you know, control or affect what happens to residential waste quite easily. You know, they'll put out a consultation and they'll make some decision hire some very expensive consultants and blah, 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 and then they might may or may not roll out a particular service or not or whatever. Um, but they have no control over the private sector. Like, they can't really affect the decisions of landlords and business owners. So we're able to meet those landlords and business owners where they, where they want to be, which is the intersection between affordability and professionalism and telling storytelling um it's what we're finding with those services that it's a really great way for people in a sustainability role at work to get some really easy wins under their belt like if you you know a lot of these roles are actually just pro bono people might just start like the sustainability group at the law firm or something it's not paid role but they're like hey you know how can we knock our heads together and do better um, a great way for them to indicate to their boss that this thing has teeth is get some worm farms in because mm. it's actually really cheap when you compare it to let's put solar panels on the roof or replace our fleet of motor cars with electric or you like or build a whole new building. Um, Just so people know, like if you've got a square meter of concrete pad space, you can have a worm farm mm. or a rooftop or a garage. Like you don't need actual. Just in case people are confused, you don't need any soil or dirt for no. this. It's literally just a yeah. self-contained uh, sort of square box. Yeah. Um, it's what, a metre or so high, metre and a half high maybe? Yeah. Um, maybe 80 centimetres wide? 60. 60 centimetres yeah. wide. So it's not a lot of space that you need. Yeah. for, and, and some businesses may need more than one, but mm. uh, it can definitely be in a garage or in a, yeah. you know, um, in, a, in a, any space that you've got that can... Mm. Uh, a little spare concrete bit of pad or whatever. Yeah. And so for those places where they don't have any sort of biophilic landscapes around, we'll take the, all that fertility away and donate it to community gardens or school gardens. Um, we have a, like a, a little impact project where we teach about waste minimization in schools. And we do that in partnership with the school gardening group. And um, it's our role is to kind of complete the circle from that farm to table and we talk about the table to farm and it's kids just get it and it really works and so that's kind of like our little um i don't know even though there's so much social impact already we, we like to i don't know maybe tell stories and, and also give people opportunities or special deals to um contribute to these programs in the schools and stuff but that's 
that's kind of like what we're up to. It's and through the through the language of what council and what economists want to hear is that we we essentially we offer worm farms on the circular economy. So instead of our linear take make waste economy, we're we're looping our outputs up with our inputs. And so instead of everybody has their own worm farm and maybe they have a bad experience and the worms die and it gets stinky and then the whole thing kind of winds up sitting in the backyard until the trailer goes to the dump. Mm. Um, we, we bring in a really, really well-designed, well-built, high-quality worm farm and then we take care of it. We are the stewards of that product and a core tenet of the circular economy is access over ownership mm-hmm. and what, what people have is access to the the worm's ability to transform their waste into soil instead of ownership over the the plastic and steel vessel that the worms live in mm-hmm. and through that the, I mean that access over ownership kind of principle is being expressed much more commonly now really common in Silicon Valley like all of these products have turned into services and then that a kickoff from that is is that if you're going to be the the steward of a product, you, you don't want it to be a, a crap product. And so, quality of a quantity is sort of the the trade-off that people um, will always go for quality if they're going to have a fleet of something. And so, yeah, I've got about three three hundred and fifty worm farms um, sort of spread throughout the country now, wow. and we're in a position to turn that into sort of three and a half thousand um, over the next year so we've we've kind of we've got our operations sussed um, we've got we've got Josh in Dunedin I'm about to set up Rosaria in Christchurch I've just moved to Wellington and um, I've just trained up David in the Bay of Fleming and then we have another Josh in Auckland and we need probably need another person for Auckland soon and then we have Tara in Wanaka and Susie in Mount Maunganui. And so it's, yeah, like, whoa, <laughs> it's a pretty big walker now. And, um, but everyone seems to be paddling in time. And, yes. and um, yeah, we have a good culture. Like I've really um, put a lot of effort into creating a non-hierarchical organization. I really, I really have no interest in kind of being at the top of like some pyramid scheme or whatever like I just the well-being of our people is is more important to me than like my ability to buy stuff <laughs> and the well-being of the land you know kaora te whenua kaora te tangata is what what drives me you know I think there's a lot of a lot of focus in our kind of contemporary spirituality circles of like healing ourselves before we can heal something else but Maybe those people have yet to experience the, the, the raw, effective healing power of healing the land. The land will heal you. Um, so well, I think through that kind of philosophy, I wound up doing a lot of like retreats and adult education and um, change maker sort of incubators and things like that. So there's a, there's a strong sort of... Um, teaching and learning arm of Y-Waste and yeah I just love it 
I live for it. It's good. I love. I love to. Man. I love to humble myself to nature and be more in service to life. And a, a living future just sounds great. <laughs> Such an elegant solution too. And I implore anyone listening to this to to check out the Why Waste website. Check out your story. Check out the TED talk. Um, and. and Encourage you know start a little sustainability group in your office. Mm. Present this as a solution to the to the powers that be. Get a worm bin installed in your office. Get one installed at home uh, as well because this is some an action step that you can take. It's not that hard to implement. Um, Leo's doing his bit to roll it out around the country. Let's help him get these you know get it. Let's help him get a worm bin in as many offices and backyards as possible. On that note. I just want to say on behalf of everyone listening, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and just and just listening to your riff and uh, on all these subjects that are so dear to your heart and dear to mine as well. So thank you so much, man. Sure, Andy. Appreciate it. Ciao, everybody.